G'day everyone, bloody excited to be here and privileged to introduce you to a wonderful friend of mine, the lovely Keisha Pettit. Keisha and I have connected through the podcast world. She is the executive producer of three incredible shows. You will have heard of Life Uncut with Brit and Laura, Not an Overnight Success with the wonderful Gus Warland, and also Two Doting Dads with Matt and Ash and, you know, all Aussie-based pods that are doing incredible things. And she is a big part of what those podcasts do and why they're doing such great things in the space. And as someone who has spent many years working in radio and production and media, that's no surprise that she's just an incredible storyteller herself. Um, but just such a peculiar story as to how she's ended up in the position that she is now in, you know, formerly studying science to a high degree. And I just think it's um, such an incredible conversation around how sometimes the lowest points of our life and our greatest points of adversity and struggle lead to these incredible openings in which a whole new world is opened up to us. And I love that part of Keisha's story. We get teary, we get emotional, we get honest. This is just a bloody belter of an episode through and through. And um, it's been really enjoyable for me to listen back on this conversation after having it. And I know that you will enjoy it too. So without further ado, let's welcome the lovely Keisha Pettit. Keisha Pettit, it's so good to have you here. Thank you. I feel like it's we're very similar. That's why we've gotten on so well, so easily. But I love what you do. You're doing some amazing work for everyone's information. You are involved as the EP, executive producer, of some great pods. Basically 50% of the podcasts that people in Australia listen to, <laughs> you're responsible for them. <laughs> I wish. I wish it was 50%, but... Yeah, do you know what? When you actually message me, because I get a lot of messages from people asking about guests on podcasts, but it's usually the other way around. It's usually people messaging me saying, hey, I'd love to be on something that you make yeah. or I'd love to have the people that you work for on my podcast. And I was so flattered when you were like, I'd love to chat to you. <laughs> Honestly, I read it and I was like, did he forget the part where he told me like who he actually wanted to talk to or is it me that you actually want to have? I'm really flattered. No, I think yeah. it's funny that you're so humble about it because, well, well, funnily enough, the first time I reached out to you was because I was pitching myself to come on, you know, one of the pods that you, you organise and produce. And then as we got chatting and I started to like watch more of the clips that you'd been involved in and like watch more of the pods, I was like, she's a fucking gangster interviewer. <laughs> And you've like you've, and, and to be fair, so here's the thing: you've been a part of some big interviews, mm. and I just think you ask some brilliant questions. And so then, obviously, like having spoken to you and I heard more about your background and the fact that you were, you know, on Brecky Radio for seven years, and I was like, this makes so much more sense. But I kind of just at first thought, oh, she's just one of those humans who just knows her shit and just is a great conversationalist see I just I hear that and I laugh because I'm like oh good I've got one person full like <laughs> I just think so much of what we do you're just throwing shit at a wall seeing what sticks and like even how I got into podcasting to begin with is the most roundabout unexpected mm. but delightful thing for me sorry also if you can hear if anyone can hear something in the background 
that's a little tap tap or something currently drinking water. We've got the dog here. <laughs> yeah, everyone's probably thinking, fuck, Brad's having a gallon of water today. <laughs> <laughs> it must be a hot day. Yeah. It is a hot day, but the aircon's pumping. Um, we've also got Delilah here. Yeah, she's loving it. So I know some of your story, but still it's I've heard it once and it's so wild to me like how crazy and chaotic the last 10 years of your life has been. So kind of like how did you get into this? How I got into it was such an accident. And I actually think that the more people that I meet who are in the like either radio or podcast, entertainment in general, a lot of them are like, yeah, this wasn't really the goal. And not that it wasn't the goal, it just wasn't what I expected to happen. So like going way back as a teenager, I was a really curious person and I was obsessed with science. I still am. So I'm in my honours year. I'm really looking forward to starting this like PhD journey into becoming, you know, what I thought I really wanted to do and got it about three quarters of the way through the year and I was so miserable. Like I just, but I didn't know what depression was. I mean, I knew what it was because like I I was a researcher and I was, you know, addiction rarely comes without depression and anxiety. But I didn't recognise it in myself and I was in a really good relationship. Like the guy I was with was such a good person and we lived together and from the outside it was just this, you know, everything was falling into place of what I thought I wanted and everything looked like the trajectory was good. But I was so deeply unhappy and I got a job in radio at the time for the weekends. So when you do your honours year, you don't pay, you don't get paid, you actually pay to do it but it takes up more than 40 hours a week. It's probably more like a 50, 60 hour thing. And so I didn't have much spare time. And two of my friends at the time worked for the radio and it was in like the promotions team, you know, the ones that go around and do all the events. Like a street fleet or something. Totally, like like free cans of Coke, do the events, that kind of thing. And so they were hiring and I was like, oh, maybe I should get a job with you guys because like I don't have a bunch of free time. That way at least we'll get to hang out while I'm making a bit of money and... Anyway, we got to the end of my honours year and to go into a PhD and get a full scholarship, it's it's not guaranteed, but it's a lot more likely if you get a first class honours, which is uh, 85% or above, or at least at my uni it was. I ended up ending my year on 84%. And it was this really, there's been a couple of times in my life where there's just been these such definite forks in the road. And so I remember when that happened and I just thought this whole dream of mine was over. You know, like I was just like, it's not going to be possible because not that you get paid much when you do a PhD anyway, but it's definitely less likely if you are not earning any money and not getting a scholarship like that you're going to be able to do this. And so I kind of had this quarter life crisis moment and I was like, all right, well, I might take a year off. I'll save up a bunch of money. I'll do some traveling and I'll figure it out. And the radio thing just ended up so accidentally snowballing. You know, I started doing producing for the radio and then I started being a music announcer. And then I was like, oh, maybe I want to get into this like content side of things and got a breakfast radio show down in Victoria. Did that for a couple of years. And in 2020, uh, there were probably, I think there was about 56 of us that all had uh, worked in regional breakfast radio. And we all got axed on the same morning. And so, yeah, we were told, like, this is it. But for us in Victoria, that was when we were in lockdown and no one else in the country was. Yeah. Okay. So it was a bit of a grim time. 
and I ended up having to spend another like I think it was nine weeks down there because Gladys wouldn't let us back into New South Wales. <laughs> so cheers yeah, cheers a lot. Went through hotel quarantine, came back to New South Wales, and had another bit of like a a real struggle to get back into the industry. But yeah, eventually found my way, clawed my way back in, is what I would say. It's so wild to me, right? So a couple of mornings ago, I was down the beach and I love to exercise in the morning and then go for a dip. Yeah, you're a morning person. I'm a morning person. Yeah. And I you're was, like up before the sun. Up before the sun. So is Soph, so it makes so much sense. Yeah. Like it just feels natural. But I, this particular morning, I was like, I'm going to go out, go for a walk, have a dip, have a coffee. And I was just waiting to jump into the water and I was by myself and... I just found myself reflecting and I was like, I was sitting out in the water and like looking back at the mountains out at Winuna in the water, just a really peaceful day. And I was like, oh, my life's really good right now. And I kind of thought about the last year or so and even the few years that have preceded it. And I'm not, I would say I'm not a spiritual person. We're not extremely spiritual anyways. Like I'm not a yoga guru kind of meditate guy. Like I've never meditated. But I just, for some reason, I was like, I don't know if I believe in fate, but I definitely believe the universe is conspiring in my favour. Are you the type of person who thinks, who believes that everything happens for a reason? Yes and no. I think when thing, I think I'm an optimist. Mm. So when something bad happens, I go everything happens for a reason just because I, I want to be optimistic about it but I just sat in the water and I was like despite all of the challenges of the last couple of years here I am in love with a girl that I want to be the mother of my children with the time and the space to do this thing that I believe I'm I'm good at and love with enough food on the table and a beautiful roof over our head and I'm healthy and I'm well and I can't always have said that about my past mm. I just feel like the universe conspires in your favour. And there's a book that I love. I don't love many books. I'm not much of a reader. But it's The Alchemist. And there's a line like that in that book. And I just hear a bit of that in your story. I'm like, it's so contrasting to go from science to this world. Like, they're almost polar opposites. One of them is, like, the podcast industry, outside of maybe some of the more educational podcasts, it's a feel industry. Like you make people feel something and they connect to a show for that reason. And I just feel like there was something pulling you towards it. How hard was it to, to listen to that? Especially because people who are interested in science are usually more analytical. They make decisions based off evidence. There's no real evidence to suggest that there was any life for you in this space. It's, it's in, like your insight into that is actually very interesting to me because I see people often, uh, they will either be a more logical person or they'll be an emotional person. And I never felt like I fit in in science. And that's not to be offensive to anyone who was, is there. Like the people that I worked with, when I think about what they would have said about me, <laughs> they were probably like, oh, she just talks too much. Like she was too much energy you know there was just so much going on but I also realized that the thing that I hated about science was that it's the same thing every day it has to be that's how science works you mm. can't do an experiment and have variables that are not what you're actually testing there's got to be things that are controlled and I just got so bored with the repetition 
And I didn't recognize it until much, much, much later when I was already in the industry that it was the emotional side of things that I was really lacking because whenever I would do research, you know, like I said, I was really passionate about addiction, but the reason I was passionate about it was because I really think the narrative of addiction is not accurate in society. Like I think Mm -hmm. the way that we view people who struggle with addiction is that we really look down upon them. Whereas I see it more as a health condition where I'm like, oh no, their brains work so differently. Mm. And I think it was through that emotional side of things that I realized how much more I liked I like human connection. That's like, that's the thing that gets me going. And I didn't have that in science. It was weird because I didn't realise that that's what was lacking until I actually had the opposite of it. You know, Mm. I didn't know what it was about the industry that I loved, but I loved it. I loved that it was exciting, different stuff every day. You get to meet people. You get to, I mean, as you have, hear the most incredible stories and you're like how's this a job <laughs> this is cool like special. you know i'm not working with rats every day that take cocaine so like <laughs> this is yeah it feels far more human than yeah. that it's interesting isn't it because just as you were talking there i was thinking you know one of my guests tom nash said something to me about he likes this concept he calls the author where he thinks about you know if i was to write a book about this next 30 years of my life what would I want to write about and then reverse engineer my life so that it looks like something I think will feel fulfilling. And like, it's almost like that reversing the approach to the kind of life you want to live. And I think about that from a career level because in many ways, I'm kind of surprised that I'm here. But if I actually look at how I was as a kid, it's not that surprising. Mm -hmm. And it it didn't stand, like I've always been talkative and, and curious and interested and there's this running joke amongst my family that my, my dad and my sister in particular, we went on this trip overseas and I was probably 18 at the time. We went to Italy and Greece and everywhere we went, just any person I could bail up, I would just be like, question for you. Like, how does this work in this country or this or that? And so they always would go, question for you. Like, and take the piss out of me. But it's funny that like when I'd been in this for maybe a year or two, a girl that I went to school with for like 13 years of my life, um, Mackenzie, shout out to Macca, mum now and doing some amazing things in her life. She said to me like just randomly out of the blue, oh, this makes so much sense. Yeah. And it's like all those people could see those character traits in you that you didn't recognise. And I think that that must be how it happens for a lot of people. Like I think when I was younger, I thought it would be such a like, this is where I want to end up. And so these are the steps that I have to do to get there. And I don't think I actually realised what, I don't know, maybe this is a privileged thing to say because we are lucky enough to have a passion for what we do and for some people that's just not possible because they've got responsibilities that we don't have. But when you are looking back, it's when you can go, oh, I get how I got here because it actually just it came naturally to me because of various ways that maybe my brain's a bit different to someone else's and that curiosity in you of you know being an 18-year-old being like, hey, I want to know about this and now you end up asking people like how their lives are and ask them questions well there's that great saying there's many ways to skin a cat yeah and which is weird it's a weird like why why are there many ways to skin a cat what what are we getting i'm just trusting that there is but i think it's funny like that that idea of there's so many ways to get to the destination Mm. of what you're trying to do or not even the destination but like to reach that objective and i think that you know you spoke about your interest in addiction and like wanting to help people in that space. And one of the ways to help is science. 
another race conversation. Mm. So you eventually found your way into this space. And, you know, you've been in this space for how long now? In podcasting Podcast, specifically? Yeah. Uh, gosh, it'd be nearly three years now, I think. And it was a weird period. You know, oh, yeah, it would be because it was 2020 that I lost my job. And like I said, weeks spent down in Victoria twiddling my thumbs and to be much more transparent about the shift. When I got back to New South Wales, I was in a really, really, really bad place mentally, like properly bad. I was very unhealthy. I was like 53 kilos, just not not good in the head. And um, I got back here and I was dating someone who lived in Sydney and I was trying to get a job in Sydney. And this is like, this is the year of COVID where media just got decimated. And I was applying for every job known to man, like just anything on the fringe of media, social media roles in media organisations. I was like, I'll go for that. You know, I'll I'll chuck my hat in the ring. I'll do what I can. And I was applying for a lot of jobs that were, and I say this not out of a perspective of ego, they were quite literally beneath me in terms of my skill set. Like there were jobs that I had either come from doing or things that I had years and years and years of experience in, but it was a junior role. Like, so I'm not trying to be a wanker and be like, it was beneath me. They were like on the terms of the job skill level, they quite literally were. And I wasn't even getting interviews for them. Like I was not even getting the opportunity to have a conversation. And it's because so many people were wanting jobs at the time and there were no jobs to go around. And I kind of had this another like quarter life crisis, hope quarter, maybe third, <laughs> who knows, who knows like, how long it'll be. But I had this moment where I was like, holy shit, like I took a gamble, I rolled the dice on this radio thing and it's just, it's fa- like I have failed. I have fundamentally failed at this. Weirdly, I caught up with uh, my friend Tegan. She's, she was Miss Universe for Australia, beautiful person, like physically, obviously, but also inside. And we hadn't caught up for more than 10 years. It was such a weird kind yeah. of like, I think sometimes there's, I'm not a universe person. I'm not a spiritual person either. But I think every now and then there are these coincidences that it's like, wow, that, that point in your life really changed the course, that changed the trajectory. She sat me down and she was like, what do you want to do? You know, what is it? Do you want TV? Do you want podcasting? Do you want radio? Do you want like write a pros and cons list? And I was like, okay. And so I did. And I realized that, you know, what I loved about podcasting that I didn't get out of radio is that you can have these deeper, more real conversations. And the reality is, is that commercial radio is so severely produced. It's very like, you know, like, and we all laugh at the same time and then we hit the button and then we go out into the ad break. Like, it's genuinely what we're taught to do, that you're supposed to set up a break. It's meant to go for four minutes. You've got the intro, you've got to get in in 30 seconds we can play around for three minutes and then we've got this out and we've got to get out of this. You know, that's how radio is. It's very formulaic. I hated that if you were having an amazing conversation or something that was so interesting. I remember one time on radio, I spoke about uh, voluntary euthanasia and I ended up getting really upset in this and it, it surprised me at the time. I didn't expect to get upset. Victoria was the first state to bring it in in Australia. And I was, I'm very much in favour of voluntary euthanasia and I was mm. talking about how much I think it's a positive thing. And, um, you know, it was one of the most impactful things I think I ever did on radio and we got hundreds of messages. And I remember talking about it like two weeks later and one of my content directors was like, you know, it was so great, the vulnerability was awesome, but probably could have been a minute less. 
And he was right. Like, that's exactly what you're supposed to do in radio. Mm. But I hated that that conversation had to be capped because of a time limit. And so I was like, podcasting is more real to me. It's within reason. You can almost say whatever you want. And whether you get cancelled because of that or not is dependent on who you are as a person, not because someone's going to tell you that you're not allowed to go back on air the next day. So I loved that. She's like, cool, you should go for podcasting. What podcast do you love? And we went through the list and she's like, well, why haven't you reached out to them? And I was like, because they don't have jobs available. And she was like, who cares? Like, why don't you just reach out to them? And so that's how I ended up messaging Laura and Britt. I messaged them on Instagram and I was like, hello. (laughs) I like your podcast. I am a listener. I think I could make some really cool stuff for you guys. I know that Laura's about to have her second baby. She's probably going to, because she was doing all the editing up until that point. And so I was like, you know, can I edit for you? I'll do some trial ones. I'll show you, you know, I'll show you that I can do it. I was so, I look back on it and I'm like, wow, the desperation in that message must have been really rich. Anyway, they said, um, I think you could be the person we've been looking for for like quite a while because they'd been speaking about getting someone else on board and the personality dynamic just seemed to fit. So I was working for them for three months before I even met them in person because it was like by distance. Oh, yeah, wow, yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of how things started to snowball and it was to the point where like I was also working uh, on Triple M at the time Again, that was another like really lucky situation. There was a guy that I'd met when I was working in Newcastle at Triple M. We'd just met on the one-off occasion that they were up in Newcastle. And, you know, Radio World connects a lot on Facebook. Like you have everyone that works in radio on Facebook. And I got this message being like, hey, I heard that you're really like you're looking for work. Is there any chance you want to come and do some of the footy? And I was like, yes. (laughs) Love that shit. Absolutely. Thank you. And so I initially didn't have enough work to like make it a job, but I was scraping by just like really trying to snowball my way into the industry. And that's kind of just what, like exactly what ended up happening. And I feel so lucky because now the things that I work on are the best projects I ever, like I'm just, I feel so, so, so lucky, but it's so crazy because I remember I had this moment uh, where I really had to slap myself in the face and be like, you have absolutely lost perspective here. And it was a real like pin drop moment. Mm. I think I, t- I might have told you this on the phone. Tell me if I haven't, I'll stop. You, you no, can I cut hear, it out. I hear it because I mean, this really perspective in particular is one of the things that really interests me. So I'd spent four months trying desperately to get a job, right? And I got the life uncut thing. I was working once a week at Triple M and with the guys on the sports show and it was fucking awesome. And through that, that's how I met Gus. That's how we ended up doing a podcast together because we're in the radio studio at one, one Saturday morning and he shouts across the studio desk, hey, do you want to do a podcast with me? Like, would you produce a podcast for me? And I was like, yes, <laughs> I'd love to do that. And so for that podcast, it's called Not On Overnight Success and uh, – Gus interviews people who are elite in the field of business, entertainment or sport, but it's more so like about their personal life. And this one day I'd driven over to Lane Beachley's house. She's got such an interesting story. I should absolutely connect the two of you because you would get on. So she, her story is amazing, like adopted into her family, adopted into the Beachley family and then ended up becoming a professional surfer, the most decorated female surfer. Like it's just... You can't write that stuff. You wouldn't believe it if it was a movie. 100%. 
And while we were there, we met her husband, Kirk Pengilly, who was the, he's from In Excess, yeah. you know, one of Australia's most successful musicians. And when we were leaving, Gus was kind of like, hey, could we come back next week and interview you? And he's like, okay. So the following week came and I live in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. They live in the northern beaches. And that can take you half an hour. It could also take you two and a half. Like traffic between those two areas is very unpredictable and it can be very bad. And I got to the point, I was on the phone to my mum driving and I was driving across the Sydney Harbour Bridge and I have a really bad case of road rage. Like it's something I'm trying to work on. It's not a good personality trait, but... I'm driving across there and there's so much traffic that I've had, it's dawned on me. I am going to not only be like a little bit late, but like a lot late. And I was like, it's so disrespectful of me. Like, I can't believe this. I'm swearing and yelling at every single car that drives past because they're in my way. And I was just, I was really angry. And my mom's like, do you know what? I'm going to go like, you need to focus on driving. Cause I'd put us in such a situation where she was just like this is not a nice time I don't want to be in part of this conversation so she hung up the phone and it's so weird I don't know what it's like someone hit me with a brick physically and I was like less than a year ago you were crawling on your fucking hands and knees trying to get a job in anything Mm. not only are you driving across something that people like save up for their entire lives to see you're driving across the Sydney Harbour Bridge Mm. you're going to the house of someone that people would pay thousands of dollars to sit in front of and learn from you're going to their home Mm. and you're getting paid to do it like you're getting paid well to be there and I was like how did I lose perspective on this so quickly I think that's what it was it was because it happened within maybe 10 months that I'd gone from being in this position of like willing to do anything to just so ungrateful for the opportunities that I was being given and like was presented in front of me. Like, and I, I just do not even know how I got that lucky to fall into that. Anyway, I eventually get to their house and I knock on the door and I'm like sweaty with all of the podcast gear. And I'm like, I'm so panicked because I'm like, I'm so sorry. This is really rude of me. Kirk answers the door and I'm just apologizing. Like, and he looks at me and he goes, oh, sweetheart, I'm retired. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Gus, he, pull, he reaches around. He's like, Gus told me how you like your cup of tea. Lane's in the kitchen making you a smoothie. And I was, just, I was like, what the fuck is my life? <laughs> like, That's one of Australia's best musicians just handed me a cup of tea because he knows how I like it, apparently. How is that? And he's white. It was a good cup of tea. Because you were so indecisive about what you wanted to drink at the cafe this morning. So. Yeah, that was because I didn't want to have too much caffeine. <laughs> oh, I'm trying to limit the amount of caffeine. But it was just one of those moments that I was like, wow, I really lost touch so quickly. And that day, I gained it back. We are our worst enemies as human beings because we all do it. We all do it. We all forget to recognise how lucky we are to live the lives that so many of us do. I have to remind myself all the time. Mm. And I had a story similar to that that I want to share with you. I, don't, I actually don't think you do that all the time. I think you are one of the people who like constantly checks in with perspective. I have to. There are, there are certain reminders for me every day yeah. that make it very apparent. But I'll say that, so I maybe like you, 
and my sister and I get it from our dad, road rages. I feel like I've gotten better at it because I've been able to tap into a little bit more of perspective because in many ways perspective has changed my life, mm. right? But I tend to lose perspective over comical things, right? And so at the start of this year, it was March, I got an invite to go and speak at an event, an event that I'd been really, really trying to get on the list of. Sent a couple of emails and messages that landed on deaf ears, trying to figure out how I can realise this dream as a speaker, storyteller, podcaster. And so I'm just knocking down any door for an opportunity. And randomly one afternoon I get a call from Cooper Chapman, who, friend of the show, friend of mine, good man, good human, which is, you know, funny because his show's called Good Humans. And he just said, hey, um, sitting here with an event organiser and they've just had someone pull out of an event next week. Have you heard of Humankind? And I'm like, I have, because I've been knocking down the door to try and get on that list. He's like, I just said they needed someone. And I was like, this guy's the best storyteller I know. And he's like, would you like to do it? I'm like, I would love to do it. <laughs> I will do it for free. Yeah, like, please, like, <laughs> put me on the list. So they put me on the list. I'm excited, so excited. And I'm like, this is a great opportunity to get some really good show reel footage. Is that when you go back and you unsend the messages you've sent them on Instagram? Because <laughs> you're like, no. I don't want them to know that I was... <laughs> I was that desperate. I was banging down the door. I, you know, I want them to think <laughs> that they've come to me and I'm doing them a favour. <laughs> I probably should have, but I didn't. <laughs> and so the day comes and I've organised one of my best mates, um, Joey, to come and film. So mm-hmm. I had a show reel from the day. And Soph was coming, of course. And so the three of us had tickets and we're like, we're going to hang out, check out this whole day, some great speakers on, some great entertainment. It's at Luna Park in Sydney. So like, this will be fun. I did not know what to expect. So I get up there. We're driving up there and I don't love Sydney traffic. Who does? And so, you know, when you go into the tunnel from Southern Cross Drive and like Vaguely. where near where the Audi Centre is there? Kind of. Like, There's a couple of roads there that I know if you get in the wrong one, you've added. challenging. Yeah. Yeah. I go down the tunnel and we're going through and I'm like, I don't know if it's this tunnel we've got to get out of oh, or not. Yeah. And we, get, we exit out just for safe, like for safety's purposes so we don't find ourselves way down the road. Realise it's the wrong one. And I'm sitting in the left lane and I'm like, oh, I'm pretty sure this left lane can go straight or turn. And so we're sitting at the green light and I'm like, oh, sweet. Try to go straight. Next minute, crash with the car beside me. Completely my fault. And I'm like, oh, you're kidding. Like, and it was a relatively heavy collision I'm like there's definitely decent damage so we pull over and I'm like I'm just gonna stay cool it's my fault completely fucked up I get out of the car the lady was a bit shaky I'm like you're right I'm so sorry that's my fault she's like you know I'm okay it's fine she's like oh is it my fault I'm like no it's my fault (laughs) chill out relax and I'm like let's take some photos I'll grab a photo of your license I was like I'm just about to go speak at an event my day's gonna be crazy but I promise I'll call you tomorrow and she's like that's no stress so I get in the car and I'm like, are you guys all right? And so it's like, I'm fine. Joey's like, I'm fine. The whole front bumper of my car is fucking hanging off. And I'm like, this is not going to derail our day. Because I just have a feeling that if I go to this event and I'm angry about this, it will ruin what I've been looking forward to mm. for months, an opportunity to speak on a big stage. And so we get there and we park and I'm like, I can't believe that I've done that. It's going to cost me a fortune. And at the time... It's not weird for me to say. Like, I feel like this is quite an honest thing to say. Like, I just didn't know how we were surviving any week. 
yeah. financially. Yeah. Like we were on the bones of our ass. And I'm like, that's like a thousand dollars excess. Like that's just gonna hurt so much. But just don't let it get in your head. And so we go there and it's my turn to speak. It's like 11 o'clock. And I just so happen to be, so the whole, the whole thing's a three day summit and the headlining act of the whole summit is Wim Hof. Wow. And I'm speaking at the exact same time as Wim Hof on the other stage. <laughs> so in the crowd. That's like being yeah. on at a festival. Yeah. When, yeah, no, that's like That's, that's a tough, like being on at a festival thing. and like, let's say like Rufus DeSoul's performing and you've done one gig in the lounge room for your mum and dad. Like, I'm like, <laughs> no one in their right mind is looking at the program and going, oh, fuck, Brad speaking. <laughs> Going, miss Wim. Oh shit, I'm in the wrong place. Yeah. I saw yeah. I sat down in the wrong theatre. Like. I've seen Wim a couple of years ago. Maybe we'll go check out this Brad guy. This fucking sounds interesting. But that's not happening. But it was so <laughs> I'll, I will go as far as saying it was the smallest crowd of the whole week in my room. And the only people in my room was Soph and Joey, some of the staff, Cooper, because he's like, fuck, I've, like I've got to watch him speak. Um, one other guy who knew about me and then this one dude who like we had some conversation with a great man Steve Lewis he's an unbelievable human Steve Lewis had been speaking to us and I think he felt obliged to stay he was also working in the room on his laptop at the time so I don't think he could move <laughs> and I spoke and I was just like you know what I'm getting a show reel with some people in the room this is a great rep for me I'm excited to be here I'm going to make the most of it and I spoke what I'd like to think really well. And at the end, everyone in who was in the room, like everyone in the room, come up and gave me a hug or shook my hand. It was a really nice moment. And then we just went about the rest of our day. And the day was great. Like, we met so many amazing speakers. They had this beautiful VIP room and a green room that we got to eat some nice food in afterwards. We went and caught the whole day of speakers. And at the end of the day, Geordie, who was one of the guys organising, it was like, mate, that was fucking outstanding. Like, wow. thank you so much. Like, if you ever need anything, call me. And so the next morning, I was sitting on the balcony at home and I just thought, I'm just going to text him and say, hey, if anyone pulls out on Saturday, it was Friday. I was like, if anyone pulls out on Saturday on the big stage, call me, I'm there. And he calls me literally 30 seconds later and goes, someone pulled out on the same stage in 90 minutes. Can you be at Luna Park? And I was like, yeah, easy. I was like, Soph, scramble for your life. <laughs> we run, jump in the shower, get in the car, front bumpers hanging off, fanging at the Sydney, <laughs> right? Somehow get there in 90 minutes. I'm busting for a piss. I've got to piss, piss myself on yeah. stage. I'm like, Geordie, got to give me 30 seconds. They had like someone come and grab us out of the car and like run us to the stage because like it was going to be that tired. Bit more of a crowd that day. Got on stage. Best I've ever spoken in my life. Oh my god! Like it was just on. And like at the end of it, I think their staff voted me as their speaker of the week. But it was crazy to me that that night, so we decided to stay there the whole day again, Soph and I, and we stayed there and we went and we watched some people speak and it was such a great day and we met some incredible humans. And in the VIP room, which was the room, I don't know what you'd call it at Luna Park, but it's the room that looks over the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge, oh, like over pretty. the water there. Yeah. And we're sitting on the balcony there. It's like 5.30. Sun's going down, having some nice cheeses and stuff that we definitely can't afford at the time. 
And I'm like, eat as much as you can. <laughs> get a little doggy bag. If you've if you got a napkin, wrap it. And we're sitting there and I'm looking at Soph and I'm like, I'm sitting next to the woman I love at a place that would cost you fucking hundreds to eat if you were eating somewhere like this. I've just done the thing that I love. I've met all these incredible people and I've had people who have come out of their way to tell me that, like, my thing was the thing that they enjoyed the most this week. Wow. Like, imagine if I let myself lose perspective over the fact that we had a car stack on the way up on day one. None of this would have happened. And that's why it's so important for me to remind myself of that shit. Yeah. Life can be so special if you just allow it to be, mm-hmm. you know. And, like, I think we just forget that. And I, and that's why I think conversations like these are so important because there are so many people who, and granted, because life is tough. At the same time as it's very magical, it's also very tough. I think it's tougher for some people and I think it would be so remiss of me not to acknowledge, like, I come at this from such a privileged position, you know, and I know a part of your story. Your life has had challenges that I cannot imagine. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that's the other part of perspective that I think is really important for people to acknowledge because I can say like, oh, you know, these things just happened and it was so lucky that things snowballed for me and I'm driving across Sydney Harbour Bridge because, you know, I was going to these amazing people's houses but there are certain aspects of my life that I didn't have control over where I had privilege that enabled me to get those opportunities. For sure. But I recognise the same because I look at other people with CF and think, man, if you had my parents, would it be different? Mm. You know? That's interesting. I, I've said to you before that I uh, went to school with a friend named Jessie who has cyst- had cystic fibrosis. And uh, I'm so interested to hear about your kind of story with it because I know it's genetic like genetic Mm. mutation and I'm assuming that there must be variations of what those mutations may mean and how severe things can be because Jessie was when I say the quirkiest cat you've ever met I like I'm not saying that dramatically he was the quirkiest funniest most unique person I've ever met in my life and ever will like there's Mm. just no one like him he he commanded the attention of the room but in a really hilarious and wacky way and we were in the same year at school together in high school I think we were 16 must have been in year 10 or year 9 or 10 something like that and Jesse had he got a call on Christmas Eve that some lungs had become available. He was really, really sick. He was in a really bad way at this mm. point. And uh, some lungs had become available, which is a really positive phone call to get for their family. Obviously a very devastating phone call to make from the other side of the coin because for lungs to become available, it means that something really bad has happened. Of course. Uh, anyway, Jesse on Christmas Day got a double lung transplant and the doctors at that time said you know, could not believe the state of his lungs. So they basically said if that lung transplant hadn't... If it had happened a day later, you'd be dead. You know, he was very fortunate in that way. And uh, Jesse got another... I think he would have been 20... I think we were 21 when Jesse passed away. So he got another... What's that, five-ish? So, uh, my time frame could be off. Mm. But he... Yeah, he got a bit of a bit extra out of life because a family made a decision to. I feel emotional talking about it. 
I remember Jesse was quite small, like a lot of yeah. people's fibrosis can be quite small. And I think it was a family of quite a young boy mm. that passed away to gift him more life. Yeah, hearing your story, I think about it and I'm like, he... I'm getting emotional. Yeah, I am too. Because like he had challenges I could never, never imagine. Mm. And I know that you would have had similar challenges to him. Severity could be different, but like... There's an amount of perspective I think you can get by going, fuck, I'm pretty fortunate that I didn't have to, mm. you know, experience that. So much so that, so I remember last year I ran Melbourne Marathon in October and it was the first marathon prep I'd done. Like I've only been running marathons for it's like three years this week. And I've always been, like, for the first 18 years of my life, I was so healthy and it's such a credit to my parents that, like, I honestly think, so I got the mutation of CF I have is um, two Delta F508 genes, which is the most common but also the most severe. But then I also got liver disease and diabetes and esophageal varices. So, like, if you looked at... Is that genetically or is that just um, something Genetically happened? through CF. Okay. So um, t- only 10% of people get liver disease. So like if you looked at my medical record and then I walk into a doctor's room, they're like, well. It's the wrong patient. That's the wrong patient. That's weird. Like what's yeah. going on? So like if you look at the list of things that I've got, I personally think if you look at that list, I'm pretty lucky to be here. So that makes me emotional to say, but I... Like, it's such a credit to my parents. They're the most amazing people. Like, I owe my life to them. That's why I'm such a family guy. And so, 2020, 2021, prepping for the marathons, like, a lot of the purpose behind that was just to prove to people with cystic fibrosis, but also to myself in many ways, that I'd had, like, a particularly challenging couple of years with, like, lung bleeds and infections, and my health was on a downslope. And in 2020, I just made a commitment to do everything I could to make sure I was as healthy as possible. And running was a big source of giving me that back. And so running the marathon was a plan I had whilst I was sitting in a hospital bed 2 a.m. one morning after three days of bleeding lungs. And I just said to Dad, I'm going to run a marathon to prove that nothing's impossible for people with CF. So when I'd done it, it was obviously a huge moment for me and it gave me that confidence. And then year two, I was sicker. And it was a really tough day, but I got it done. In year three, whilst I had like Achilles tendonitis and a couple of like physical injuries, my CF was like really good to me during the prep. And I remember like on the day, just like I wasn't confident. I wanted to run it in under four hours. And I was like, I'm going to set that's, myself this goal and fast. just like just <laughs> commit to it. And so I went out, I was like, running by myself, no headphones. My watch died at like 34Ks. And I was like, I'm just gonna put my feet down and go, put my head down and go as fast as I can. And I remember I got to 37K and we hit the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne. And I'd caught up to my pacing group because I started like a little bit late, like most things, I rock up a little bit late. And it's like, all right, I'm here now, let's go. You didn't have a car accident on the way though. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> and, I got to 37, I caught the four hour pacing group and I'm like, all right, well, I know I'm moving quicker than the pace because they all started before me. So if I just hang on to them, it'll be great. And then I just watched like the energy of the group was morbid, like people were fighting for survival. Mm. It's like, I need to leave this group and just charge ahead. So I did and I got to 39 Ks and I felt fucking outstanding. And I remember I was coming down the hill out of the Botanic Gardens and I was like, oh, I've got 
three k's to go and i feel awesome i'm well on pace like i could slow down a couple minutes and i'd be fine and i got so emotional because i was like can't believe like i've been able to do this without any hiccups and like when i got to the line it was a super emotional day because i was just like man that's like i shouldn't be able to like if you look really if you look at like what my life was supposed to be even just like to run is a privilege and so that's why i think like for me it's like i'm people are like like i enjoy just going for a run so much just because i don't think many people in my position would have been able to or you know a lot of people didn't get to enjoy this and so that's why i'm like i'm i think it's why i'm the, I'm the most emotional cat so like we were sitting here the other night I was just saying this one of my other podcast guests this week just watching um i've always been super confident about the future i would have like i always have been so stubborn that i'm like i'll live to 100 but i just never thought that i'd find like most supportive family my thing was i always doubted that i'd find a partner and so i'm like this, this will make me really emotional i just never thought i'd find someone who believed in me as much as I did to like bank their a future on that and so we were sitting here the other night Sophie and I she's been the biggest blessing and watching this video of this um lady showing a partner that they're pregnant fuck just gets me so I'm just like something I've always wanted I get to look forward to that now I just never thought I'd get that and so that's why I'm so grateful for adversity do you think that that's because realistically growing up, like you would have been informed about your condition and you would have been told that the life expectancy of someone with CF is reduced? Mm-hmm. Do you think that it's because you were nervous about not finding someone who would take a risk? Yeah. You know, like, and I'm not, this is, I'm not meaning for this to sound insensitive, so if it does, please know no, that that's not no. the intention. If you know that you have a condition where you're like, my life likely could be shorter, mm. but I'm asking someone to sign up to be my life partner yeah. when their life could be twice as long as mine, like that's a pretty big thing to ask of someone. So I have, a, there's a reason my mate likes to claim, the mate that I'm gonna talk about here likes to claim that he's solely responsible for my relationship with so. <laughs> Um, but one of my best yeah, It's got mates, nothing to do with you or who you are <laughs> no, or what you bring to the table. It's all here. It's all here. So one of my best mates, Ty, we call him Fooney. Fooney's one of the three mates that comes on the podcast. A year and a half ago, we go for a run every Wednesday morning and we have a coffee and a swim after. And this one morning in particular, we were running and he said, oh, I've got an idea. Let's go for a coffee tomorrow. And... And we've got a really safe friendship. Like everything that's said in that friendship is about helping each other. And I, I just think it's an environment that you can be really honest in. He said, let's go for a coffee and why don't you bring two limiting beliefs that you see in me and I'll bring two that I see in you that we hope can help the other person. I was like, oh, I like that idea because I'm open to a bit of vulnerability. So we sit down the next day for a coffee and we do the old dap up and sit down and order a brew. And he goes, all right, you want me to start? I was like, oh, that'd be great. And the first thing he brings up 
nearly word for word I can repeat it because it hit me like a ton of bricks. He said, it's wild to me that you can sit behind a microphone or stand on a stage and the thing that can inspire a room is your story and the adversity that you've overcome in spite of it and you wear it as a badge of honour yet it's the one thing that you think will stop you from having a romantic relationship long term. Mm. And I remember just sitting there and hearing it and thinking, that makes a lot of sense out loud. That's how I felt in my head forever. And it's absurd because no one had ever told me that that was a problem. So I had no evidence on paper, but it was just an insecurity. It was a limiting belief that I thought, you know, and I remember I used to say this to people, how do you sit down in front of the person you love's family and say, hey, I want to have a future with your daughter? And then they think, fuck, do you even have a future? Like, that's just something I thought people would think. I don't even believe that about myself. And so I remember when he said that, I was like, oh, I want to work on that because mm. I know that I'm going to be here for a long time. So why wouldn't someone else believe in that too? And... I went away on like went about the next couple of months and then I went away on a trip and I was in the US by myself and whilst I was in the US for like two weeks I was just journaling every day and I remember just writing about how I didn't feel alone or lonely but I felt this thing in my heart like something pulling at my heartstrings to say wouldn't it be nice to enjoy this with someone mm -hmm. and I come back and like three days later I sent a picture of so and so it's like, it's, it's special how it happens. But for me, it was, and I just remember, we were actually talking about this the other night because I wrote an article about this thing, falling in love with CF. And we were talking about trying to remember the exact words that she said to me. But I still remember like at some point, like early in our relationship, I asked her whether it was ever a worry that she had. And I can't remember her words, but it was something like, like I love you for you, but also you don't believe that your life's going to be short mm. so why would I like and it just and I know it's I acknowledge it's so much harder for other people because of like I'm so healthy now but just for me that's the biggest blessing and so I I just honestly believe that I appreciate so heavily and I had a guy on the podcast this I can talk about it because it'll be out by now but Jai Waitford and the thing he said to me is like I can just tell that you appreciate everything. Yeah. And I'm like, I think that's the greatest gift that CF has given me. It's just, I appreciate everything so much, like particularly people and time I get with them. And so it's why I, it's why I care very little about things that hold no meaning to me. Because I'm just like, man, life's short. Just mm. enjoy the things that are special and give you a sense of meaning and fulfillment. And it's why I'm wildly passionate about my career. And you know, I, it's probably just why I'm such an emotional guy through and through. But it makes me curious as to like the things that you have achieved and you talk about running marathons as someone with CF, I'm assuming that a lot of doctors would have been like, hey, probably not the best idea, mate. Like, Bloody oath. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you running marathons is evidence to yourself that you're like against the grain. You know, to turn up in a romantic relationship and go, I know I've got ticker in me. I know I've got a lot of longevity and I'm going to prove it. 
by accomplishing these things that people that have a condition like mine are not supposed to be able to do. Like, that's really interesting to me. Like, is it a driving force? Is it a way to kind of go, well, here's the evidence? Like, what is it about running marathons that makes you want to do it? So I, have you ever heard of William Googe? No. He just ran across the US. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did see this. He started running because he lost his mum to cancer. And Mm. it was just like his way to running was healing for him. And there's something that I remember him saying that, like, pain gives you purpose. And one of my slogan, not that I had a slogan commercially, but I guess my human slogan throughout my whole first marathon prep, because I was at the, the minute I attached a purpose to that, I was a shithouse runner. The minute I attached a purpose to it, oh, my God, I was making progress. Like, literally, it was like someone injected me with performance enhancers overnight and I didn't know about it. Yeah, well. I was just able to make so much progress. And I just came to this realisation that purpose fuels progress. Mm-hmm. Attach a purpose to something, people will do. Like, it's kind of like that mum strength. See, mum lift a car off a child. You're yep. like, how on earth does that woman lift that car? Because of the bloody huge purpose to do it. Mm. And I was—I wouldn't say I was super aware of this throughout the course of the whole prep, but on the day, so a month out from my, my first marathon, I was just sitting at home here and I'd not been feeling great, but no reason to be alarmed. Woke up this one Sunday morning and I was supposed to go for a run. And as soon as I woke up, I just had this urge to cough, like my lungs were sore. And I coughed and straight away I could taste blood in my mouth and I ran straight to the bathroom sink here and just started coughing blood everywhere. And it was like I've never coughed up that much blood in my life. It was like I'm talking everywhere. Keisha was all over mirrors, all over the walls, all over the floor. Like the sink was like pooling with blood. That's terrifying. And I was was terrified because it wouldn't stop. And normally it stops for me after a couple of minutes. Like it'll ease off. And I just couldn't stop it. And I took these two tablets that help stop a bleed. And they, they do something to um, sort of clot the blood right. in the lungs. And I just couldn't stop. And I just remember my dad's partner, Karen, heard me coughing and ran out and was just like, are you all right, darling? I'm like, I think you need to call an ambulance. And I was literally thinking, fuck, I think I'm gonna die. Because I was coughing so much. And my dad was across the road at the time with the dog and he'd come back and was like, what's going on? Like, holy shit. And I'm just like, I can't stop. And I remember like we called an ambulance because we were like, we could probably get there faster ourselves. But in case I pass out in the back of the ambulance, at least I'll be able to do something. And I just remember sitting there, got to hospital. Thankfully, I stabilised. And they run a bunch of tests just to see how much blood I've lost, whether you need a transfusion or something. Thankfully, I didn't. But I remember lying in the bed and just thinking, oh, fuck, this is a great excuse. I've got a marathon in a month. Like, 30Ks was really tough. Like, it took all of me. I don't know. Like, I'm not sure that I can do this. I believe that I can summon the energy to, to get across the line somehow. But it's not certain. And I remember just thinking, like, this would be a great reason to bow out. and Nobody would give me shit for it. Absolutely not. Like, from a hospital bed after that, like, no one would question it. And just, like, within a matter of a minute of thinking that, the doctor walks into the room and he's like, hey, Bradley, um, his name was Dr. Samuel. still remember, I've never seen him since, but his name was Dr. Samuel, and he said, hey, Bradley, what's going on? And I don't even know where it come from, but I was just like, 
mate, I got a marathon to run in a month. It's your job to get me to the start line. I'll finish it. And it's just like, all right, we better get to work. Wow. And I remember when I completed it on the day, it was a very special day. The three-month anniversary was, three-year anniversary, I should say, was Tuesday this week, the 12th. And I remember when I completed it, it was wildly emotional. So I had, on the day, I had Elastoplast wrapped around my um, wrist and it just said, for all you've done today, I'll make you proud of my dad, mum and sister's name. Wow. And the last four Ks, all I did was run and cry and look at that. And so when I got to the finish line, just collapsed out of no energy left. So happy to get it done. And I had like this surge of energy right at the end. Got across the line. The thing I couldn't stop thinking about was like it was, there was an element where I was just like, oh, I don't even care about this as a personal achievement right now. For me, there's something, not that they've ever doubted it because they're the only reason I have the mindset that I do, is I looked at my dad, mum, my sister, and I was like, if for anything, for them to see that I can overcome hard shit, this is special. And right at the end so they told me a story a couple of years ago which i didn't know like i think people think i've known a lot of this stuff my whole life my parents done a really good job of shielding from me from what cf was not because they were trying to wrap me in cotton wool but they were huge believers of what you believe about yourself and forms who you become 100 and so a doctor when i was a couple months old told my parents that i'd be better off it was the first doctor they ever seen to do with CF and he said Brad would be better off with a terminal illness like cancer that killed him or he'd get over because this will ruin his life and they got up and said you'll never see us or our son again dad walked mum out of the room and come back probably shouldn't say this but grabbed the guy by the shirt and said you're lucky I don't throw you out the fucking window you're a piece of shit and walked out of the room and they just went and found a doctor who was way more positive and did either of your parents have CF? Didn't know anyone who had it. Okay. Hearing about it for the first time. Yeah. Was so planned to bring me into the world. I was on there first, me and my sister Shania. Just wild that like a doctor would say that to two parents who were learning about this for the first time. Just no hope in his message. He said it with so much certainty like it was a crystal ball in his hand and he could see my future. They went and found a guy by the name of Dr. Morton, who was the most incredible and optimistic doctor. And I can look back on it in hindsight now and recognize it. But every time I walked into Dr. Morton's room, the first thing he asked me was not, how have you been, like health-wise? He would always say, how many medals have you won this month, my boy? And so there was all of this positive framing around my experience with my mm. health as a kid that I was kind of like, CF, whatever. Should be right. Like, I'll be right. Yeah. I'll just keep doing my thing. Yeah. I'm overcoming it. I'm yeah. you know, achieving in spite of the odds. Like, that was always my mindset. And so when I heard this story, my parents told me this in the lead up to the marathon. First time I'd ever heard this. Couldn't believe it. And I just remember at the end of the marathon, I actually shared it the other day as part of this carousel, just talking about the three-year anniversary of this event. I didn't plan any of this, but like I had six minutes worth of a speech to say as soon as I finished. There was like probably like a hundred odd family and friends there. And like the last thing I said was like to that doctor who told my parents this message. Fucking look at me now. Yeah. And like I think there's so much of me that probably needed that like needed that moment to to declare not that i knew it not that i knew that like this was something that had been said about me or like people didn't think i'd survive like a lot of this stuff has been told to me now because people can see how mentally strong i am mm. and my perspective on this all 
but I hugely believe that I had to prove to myself. And now that belief, and this is the funny thing, so you've interviewed Stephen Bartlett, I heard him and Chris Williamson talking about how belief is a product of evidence. Yeah. And it is, but I almost like slightly disagree because I think without evidence, you've got to be a little bit delusional. How do you start? Like, yeah. how does anything change if there's not a little bit of blind belief? And so for my thing is, you know, if you're a kid who comes from a background with no privilege, like, and Stephen's a great example of that, how do you achieve something if you don't first believe that it could be possible for you? I wholeheartedly agree with you. I've got five rapid fire questions, uh-huh. relatively rapid fire. I'm going to try my best to remember them because my phone's all the way over there. Do you want to grab it? No, it's fine. I'm going to okay. try. All right. I'm going to try. Question number one. Is there a personal challenge in your life you wish you addressed earlier? Yes. Are you happy to share? The reason I don't go too much on this is because it's not entirely my story. Okay. But I wish I addressed my uh, desperate need for validation at a younger age because I think that it would have made things a lot healthier for me. Yeah. I'm sure that a lot of people could relate to that. Yeah. It's a big one. Question number two. How do you personally define success? Hmm. I think when you're able to wholly be grateful for what's around you. I've spoken, I mean, the podcast is called Not an Overnight Success. I've spoken to people and so much, I think, uh, a lot of conversations now to do with success has to do with happiness. And I've actually realized that that is such a false metric because it's so flippant and it can change so quickly. Like you can be happy one second and not happy the next. I think for me, success, and I am the person, I'm a scatterbrain, I'm always doing a bazillion things, but I feel successful when I am able to be grateful for what I have and what I've built around me and feel contentness throughout that success. I really like that. Mm. I I think for me, like, because I am a, this is a podcast you can't see, but I go up and down like a, yo-yo mentally physically like I'm always you know up and down doing shit and I think I've had to learn to be so much more content with that stability like that's something that didn't come naturally to me but that's actually when I feel successful is when I'm like cool everything's calm you know that's nice yeah I really like that because I think that we and I think everyone should feel happy it's an important emotion but it's an emotion Mm. And you don't really value happiness if you've not experienced the other side, which is a little bit of sadness, sometimes a little bit of grief. Mm. And like to really feel emotions, you have to feel all things. And I think that most people, not to tell people how to live their lives, but most people would be better focusing their energy on feeling a level of fulfillment or being able to subscribe meaning to the way that they live than being happy all the time. Mm. Because I would argue that a sense of fulfillment and meaning or purpose being the buzzword for it is the thing that allows you to to go through hard shit and still have happiness still have gratitude still appreciate those gifts that we spoke about before yeah we did an episode once on life uncut um with sabina reed she's a psychologist she, we did the whole episode on purpose anxiety and it's about this idea that like we're not reaching what we're supposed to be doing and it was so interesting learning from her because I've always 
put purpose and career in the same camp. That's just been it. And learning through her, you can seek purpose in such different ways. I know a lot of people get purpose out of being a parent. Um, That's a really big one. But also, you know, she told this story about one of the cleaners at a hospital. Their whole purpose to their life was that they would make the lives of the patients that little bit better because when they would go in to clean up the rooms, they would tell them a joke or they would ask them how they were going and... And that was where they found a real sense of purpose. And I was like, wow, that's so interesting to me because I've always thought about it as being this massive thing. You know, you'll find a sense of purpose when you are the biggest podcaster, when you're achieving these things. But it's actually not because you get there and then the goalposts just shift. Like the purpose comes for me in the connection. I tend to believe that purpose can never be achieved because it can never be measured. And I think that people make it so much more complex than it needs to be Mm. my thing is it is so simple but unbelievably profound and you said it there parenthood is a huge hugely purposeful thing for so many people i'd argue my parents had the greatest purpose in the world done a fucking good job of it Mm. and so yeah i i think that we often overcomplicate things and and i just think that it's and this is the reason i've been compelled to talk about purpose in particular because it's had a huge impact on the last few years of my life and the feeling of fulfillment and and meaning that I have in doing what I do but also I just think too many people think it's reserved for A-list celebrities and sporting greats it's just not oh it's totally not and I would argue that so many of them in which um, I'm sure you've heard of Ben Crow. I have actually. Ben this, is, does. this is one of the times you said... He's very podcast relevant. Yeah, so yeah. I'm sure you'd know. I love Ben's work and I love his team. I've been hammering his team to get an interview with him for so long because I think what he does for sports stars in allowing them to see that there's a bigger purpose than what they do as athletes. Like, he, he's worked with Ash Barty and one of the things that he said was life-changing for Ash was allowing Ash to see that there's more to her than being a tennis player. Totally. And I just think that's so important for everyone. The simpler it is, the more profound it will likely be. Mm-hmm. Um, question three. What is the greatest lesson that failure has afforded you? Weirdly, that everything will work out okay. You know, I spoke to you about that moment that I realised I wasn't going to get a PhD scholarship. That failure to me... Oh, The impact that had, huge. The failure that having all of our shows axed when I, you know, was a radio announcer and I thought, far out, like this failure is so massive. There's been a lot of times where I'm like, wow, I really wish I could go back and just be, you know, have a little crystal ball or maybe a little angel on the shoulder and say, hey, don't worry about it. Hey, like everything's actually going to be okay. It will work out all right. That's what failure taught me now and so I think that there's almost like a little bit of a quiet confidence that I've gained from that because now I know that no matter what the opportunity is even if it fails because inevitably some will I'm like that's all right like you've had heaps you've you've fucked it up before like and it all works out and sometimes those things end up being massive blessings in disguise because they put you in a bit of a different direction and that's what it did for me in both situations it's actually taught me to be more bold and to take more risks because, you know, not not always will you land on your feet, but you'll find a way back to them. Like sometimes it'll take a bit longer than what you might think. 
and obviously I'm talking about, you know, a pretty privileged position. There are certain things that will happen to people where that's not possible to be the case. And I'm not referring to that, but that's what failures taught me. There's that perspective. Yeah, maybe. I don't know, maybe. Sure. I mean, I say that, but if I had a failure tomorrow, I'd probably be in my head a little bit for a while. And I hope that I would be able to like practice what I preach there. Of course. Yeah. Question number four. If you were to write a book about your life, what chapter in particular was the catalyst for the trajectory that you're now on? And what would you title that chapter? I guess, you know what? I actually think it would have to be the thing, like my deepest insecurity, I would have to write about validation. I think it's very self-indulgent to think I've got a book in me at 30, but that's probably the biggest thing that I had to learn, if that makes sense. I had to learn about that. And so I'm like, well, maybe other people could learn about it too. For sure. I don't know. I don't know if I've got a book in me yet. I will one day. One day. Everyone does. But that's probably what I think I would write about. I love that. Yeah. My last question for you is, obviously the name of this podcast is a lot to talk about. And I guess you've had a glimpse of that today. There is a lot to talk about when it comes to people, their stories, the experiences that they've had in their life. And I'm going to ask you this, I'm going to change this question a little bit for you. Through all of the people that you sat in on interviews with and all of the people you've interviewed yourself and had experiences with, what is the one lesson you've taken from one of those that you want to encourage and start a conversation amongst our community of listeners and their friends and family? What do you want them to talk about? What is the one thing that you want to share with them? I am obsessed with human connection. Like for me, it is the only thing that fuels me. It's the only thing that makes me happy. I mean, I've had a lot of conversations about it, but I think that human connection is the one thing that is able to get rid of every single one of our problems. Like no matter what problem there is in the world, and there are big ones and there are small ones, I think that that ability to connect with someone, to understand like different perspective and understand the way that they feel and think, I think that's able to rid any conflict. I'm, I'm obsessed with human connection and I think that that's what we need more of. It's undeniable that we're stronger together. Yeah. And I know like social media gets such a bad rap and I get it, you know, I get that there's, you know, it's created comparison and all these kind of negative things. But I also feel like in the world that we're in, social media has enabled me to have such a huge amount of human connection and I thrive off that shit. Like, <laughs> I love that stuff. I love so much that there are that many people that I have on social media and have done for years that I've never met in person but I feel like we're friends. Mm. And I know it's not exactly the same as sitting down with someone because nothing's better than that. Nothing's better than that actual physical connection but I think it's better than not having the connection to begin with. And I think had we not had things like social media, I wouldn't be in the position that I'm in because it's enabled me to reach out to people. It's enabled me to connect with other people. And like I said, I come from a family where wow, this world is so weird to them. They're like, just get a, get a normal job, <laughs> live down the street. Like I've lived in nine different cities, you know, bouncing around for work opportunities mostly. And I think that without things like social media, I wouldn't have seen that this was a possible pathway, if that makes sense. Of course. Yeah, so for me, I, I don't know, I, I often feel like it gets a really, really bad rap. Johan Hari, he wrote multiple, multiple amazing books, one of my favourite people. 
And he I seems like such a funny and unbelievably interesting human being. He's the funniest fucker I've ever met. Like yeah. he's just, but he's so insightful. And I initially mm. became aware of him because he had a really interesting perspective on addiction. So I became aware of him when I was in research. Then I got into radio, interviewed him on radio, and then we had him on the podcast mm. about completely different topics. Like, and the last one that we spoke to him about was uh, his work on stolen focus. And it's he kind of um, he doesn't love social media it's not his thing he thinks that it's got more negatives than positives but I was really interested to talk to him about it because I was like Johan the reason that we are meeting right now is because of social media I've interviewed you twice now I saw your your TED talk that's how I became aware of you like I think it is a really really powerful thing that gets a very bad rap and I understand why like I get I get that there are definitely negative elements to it but I for me the positives are far outweighed by mm. the negative. Sorry, the negatives are far outweighed by the positives. I agree with you. And I think that that's why I, for me personally, try to contribute the social in the most positive way. And that's why there's, there is countless times that people have said to me, you could be so much more strategic about mm. the way that you caption things, post things. Yeah, but you feel like a wanker. Like. Oh, I'm just like, I just want to have honest conversations. Yeah. If they, like, I'd love more people to see what I do, but I don't want to be a fucking dickhead in the process. Mm. So I'm just going to keep being me. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, unbelievable chat. Hey, thanks. I've really loved this. It's been such a privilege to have you on. I'm going to make sure that for everybody who listened to this and love this that all of your links to all the amazing shows that you work on and contribute to are in the show notes but also your personal socials so thank you so much thank you so much mm-hmm.